That is a little something called Minecraft Creeper. A creeper in Minecraft apparently is, according to Minecraft Wiki, a common hostile mob that silently approaches players and explodes. But since I'm not a Minecraft player, Elton John is more my speed. And if that's a little too 70s for you, there's always the band that calls itself Creeper. And let's not forget Steve Ditko's superhero creation, first appearing in DC Comics in 1968, and the murderous creature appearing in the trilogy of films entitled Jeepers Creepers, beginning in 2001. The point here is that Creeper is an ideal name for a monstrous creature, an unconventional superhero, a heavy metal band, or a strangler, as he is in our episode. I don't know when the name was first used, but it was not with this story as its author, Joseph Ruskall, seemed to think. It is, in fact, not even the first time the name is used for a strangler. More on that a little bit later. Now here's Hitch, whom we see through what appears to be a giant keyhole. Good evening, and thank you for peeping in at me tonight. I should try to make it worth your while. Now, if you will look through the keyhole with your other eye... Here, he puts up an eye chart and the camera moves through the keyhole and into the room. Excellent, thank you. Incidentally, those of you who think these letters don't spell anything couldn't be more incorrect. The last line was copied from an old insurance policy. Now that we are all in focus, I should like to make a few prefatory remarks about tonight's librette. It is called The Creeper and is about a person who had a very peculiar way of striking up an acquaintance with women. He killed them. A distinctly antisocial tendency, for it never leads to any lasting friendship. There's more, but not on my DVD. Instead, we have to turn to The Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion by Martin Grahams Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom to get the rest. But before we give you The Creeper, we have a short film which we consider further evidence that television is the world's keyhole to culture. So here's The Creeper. First broadcast on June 17, 1956. Starring Constance Ford, Steve Brody, and Harry Towns. Teleplay by James Cavanaugh, based on a story by Joseph Ruskall. And directed by Herschel Doherty. As we begin, we get a sound before the lights come up, reminiscent of perhaps a subway train. 
Now, you may think of Robert Stevens or Robert Stevenson when it comes to these audio before video techniques. But the fact is, Herschel Doherty did it the last time when he was ringing the bell before we saw it in the Belfry. That was Herschel's first directing episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. This is his second. He has 22 more, plus three episodes of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. His next is Fog Closing In, episode two of season two. Now, when the lights come up, we see that the sound is caused by the janitor, George, who is dragging two garbage cans along the sidewalk and across the field of the camera. So a threatening noise becomes a harmless one, made more harmless by the sight of a woman pushing a baby carriage and two girls playing hopscotch on the sidewalk. George drags the garbage can, so he leaves the frame of the camera altogether. And while he's gone, a woman steps out on the stoop of the building behind. A sign on the building says, no peddlers or agents, this means you. In other words, no strangers. The woman is fanning herself with a newspaper as she comes out of the door. One thing that becomes very clear in this episode is that it is hot, which adds to our discomfort as well as the discomfort of the characters. She sits in a chair that is on the stoop, and then the shadow of a shambling man appears next to her. She pays no attention as the shadow is revealed as belonging to George, the janitor whom we just saw dragging the garbage cans. He is entering the building, but he stops to talk to her, mopping his sweaty face with a rag. Hot, ain't it? The worst we've had yet. You're the new janitor, aren't you? <laughs> At your service, Mrs. Stone. Anytime you want anything done, you just yell for old George and he'll take care of it. <laughs> Satisfaction guaranteed. That's my motto. That'll last about a week. Then <laughs> you'll be just like all the others. So George is a new janitor, meaning he's just as much a stranger as any peddler or agent who might come along. That's certainly not a good thing to be, as we'll soon see when Mrs. Stone unfolds her copy of the New York Chronicle, and we can read the headline, East Side Killer Still at Large. And the subheadline, Police Tag Killer of Two Women, The Creeper. Also on that front page is a heading on the top that reads, Citizens Groups Demand Reduction in Transit Fares, and an article on the right side headlined, Court Seeks Adjournment. These are headings that we have seen before. Back in Episode 8, Our Cook's a Treasure, in a newspaper which was then called the Daily Chronicle. And we've possibly seen them other times too, but I can't keep track. In any event, we're not supposed to notice this, because it's 1956, and nobody can pause their video. Mrs. Stone reads her newspaper, and George reads it as well, over her shoulder. Uh, terrible thing, ain't it? The, them poor women. They probably asked for it. Decent women don't get themselves murdered. Mrs. Stone seems secure in her opinion, but that brief, sinister shadow of the harmless George plus that disturbing noise that we had at the very beginning, have set a different tone. Everything is potentially upsetting. Every one is potentially the creeper. And every woman is potentially a victim. At this point, we're in a two-shot of George and Mrs. Stone, but another off-camera sound, that of a window opening, draws our and their attention. And the camera shifts to include Ellen, who is poking her head out of the window, which is right next to the No Peddlers and Agents sign. 
Now, we're about to get into some scenes that involve our main characters, so why don't we look first at these two supporting characters. Percy Helton plays George, and this is his third of seven Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearances after Premonition and The Perfect Murder. His next is Nightmare in 4D, episode 16 of season two, in which he plays a building super. Rita Shaw plays Mrs. Stone. She was born in South Paris, Maine. Her father was an orchestra leader, and her younger sister also became an actress, Marguerite Shaw. She was the daughter and granddaughter of women who believed in spiritualism, and her obituary in the Los Angeles Times says that she liked to tell how she was raised in an era in which spiritualism was popular. We had mysterious old slates in the trunk in the basement and were told never to play with them. The obituary continues, Her first Broadway credit was in the 1947 production of It Takes Two. It was in the 1948 premiere of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes that Miss Shaw scored her first major success. After starring with Carol Channing in that musical, she appeared in a succession of Broadway plays, Picnic, Pajama Game, and Annie Get Your Gun. In 1956, she came to Hollywood to star again in Picnic, this time as a film. She worked in films from 1957 to 1964, The Pajama Game, Pollyanna, Sanctuary, and All Mine to Give. Rita's role is pretty serious here, but for the most part she played in comedies. She had recurring roles in The Ann Southern Show, Mr. Peepers, and The Tab Hunter Show. And she appeared in episodes of Pete and Gladys, The Carol Williams Show, The Lucy Show, Bewitched, Dobie Gillis, The Monkees, The Real McCoys, I Dream of Jeannie, Happy Days, The Dick Van Dyke Show, My Three Sons, That Girl, and The Andy Griffith Show. And speaking of The Andy Griffith Show, she had a role in the Don Knotts feature film, The Ghost and Mr. Chicken which may have reminded her of her childhood. She was Mrs. Halcyon Maxwell, the banker's wife and the leader of the Psychic Occult Society. Milo, look at me when I talk to you. Halcyon, I promised Nicholas Simmons that I would clear the title by the first of the week. Then you haven't signed the final papers yet. Well, no, 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 I haven't. Uh, Milo, do you realize how long it's been since we've had a local manifestation? We always have to go out of town, as far away as Wooster, Ohio. Oh, Halcyon. Now, don't all Halcyon me, Milo. You don't seem to realize the cosmic importance of this. Why, this is bigger than the, than the Whispering Steeple in Kansas City. It's bigger than, than the Headless Ballet Dancer in Dublin Island. And it's even bigger than the day our dear Teresa received that personal message from Rudolph Valentino in Toledo. Milo, you will not sign those papers. Oh, but dear... But you won't. But dear... You won't. But I... I own 51% of the bank stock. I won't. IMDb says, in the Odd Couple episode Made for Each Other, Oscar, upset with Claire Frost, the nanny Felix hired, says that he imagined a nanny being a nice sweet little lady with red cheeks and an umbrella. A reference to Julie Andrews' character Mary Poppins. Oscar then sings his own version of supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, another allusion to the film. Interestingly, Rita Shaw, who plays Frost, also plays cook Mrs. Brill in the movie Mary Poppins. Mrs. Brill? 
I wouldn't stay in this house another minute, not if you heaped me with all the jewels in Christendom. I've done with this house forever. Well, hip, hip, hooray, and don't stumble on the way out, dearie. That, or perhaps her role as Mrs. Grindley in Escape from Witch Mountain, is her most recognizable role. But her longest stint was as housekeeper Martha Grant in 50 episodes of the TV series The Ghost and Mrs. Muir. Here she is from the pilot episode. Oh, Martha. This is even more charming than I imagined. Gull Cottage. Now that we know where the gulls live, where do we stay? <laughs> I've never seen a house like this before. Nobody ever seen a house like this before. <laughs> Where's the beach? Can we go to the beach? Later, honey. Make it three bedrooms and we'll move in. This is exactly what I had in mind. It's a dear, gentle, lovely little house. Mrs. Muir! Mrs. Muir, I, uh, Mrs. Muir. Oh, I'm Claymore Craig, your real estate agent. How do you do? We love the house. Oh, here's your check back. What a wonderful housewarming gift. Take it. Rita Shaw died in 1982 at the age of 69. This is her only Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearance. Back now to Ellen sticking her head out of that window. Hello, Mrs. Grant. Feeling better? Yes, a lot, thanks. I think it's the heat as much as anything. Oh, terrible, isn't it? After a week of this, it's a wonder we're not all sick. <laughs> Paper says there's going to be a storm tonight. That'll break it up a little. Aren't you the new janitor? At your service, ma'am. I wonder if you'd do me a favor? Huh? I've been trying for two days to get somebody to come from the hardware store and put a boat and chain on the inside of the door. Well, they've all been pretty busy. A lot of nervous women in this neighborhood got the same idea at the same time. But don't you worry, Mrs. Grant. If anyone bothers you, you just yell for old George, and, and he'll take care of them. <laughs> George leaves, and Mrs. Stone immediately pronounces her opinion. I don't like him. He smiles too much. Your husband gone to work? Not yet. Why? No reason, but I should think you'd be afraid to stay alone so much of the night the way you do. Both of those other women's husbands were on night shifts, too. Thanks a lot. You're a big help. I'll come by and see you later. Keep you company. Ellen dismisses her, going back inside, and the camera switches with her into her apartment. We've gone from the wide-open spaces where kids are playing and women walk by with a baby carriage into a confined space ruled by Ellen's fear. And her husband doesn't help the situation any. Window doesn't help much, does it? Doesn't help these eggs, that's for sure. Now, what's the matter with the eggs? They're just no good, that's all. Well, they're no different than they are every day. You can say that again. Steve is eating eggs for supper, having just gotten up. You have been. You've been snapping at me ever since you got up. Because, as we learned from Mrs. Stone, he works the night shift. He's hot. You can see the sweat on his face, and he's in no mood for any of Ellen's fears, such as her concern that the lock on the door is not sufficient. Both those women lived about five blocks from here. So keep the door locked. A kid could open that lock. That's why I want a boat and chain put on it. All right, get one. Get two if it'll make you feel better. Ellen walks to the door and back during this exchange, and the camera follows her. We're with her, 
and her fear that the lock is not sufficient. In fact, the lock is just a simple keyhole like we were looking through in Hitchcock's intro with a key stuck in it. But Steve has his own worries, such as the fact that Ellen did not pick up his work shoes from the shoemaker. Oh, Ellen, didn't you pick up my other pair of work shoes? I forgot. You forgot. What do you want me to do, work in my bare feet? And what is probably his real worry, that he didn't get the raise he was hoping for. It isn't my fault that you didn't get the raise, you know. This seems to blind Steve from Ellen's obvious fear, even when she lays it right out for him. Ask him to put you on the day shift. Please, Steve, please, just for a couple of weeks until the police catch this guy. Are you kidding? No, I'm not kidding. I'm scared. Every time you go out that door and I'm alone here, I jump at every sound I hear in the hall. What would you like for me to do, sit and hold your hand? So the supper ends in an argument and Steve angrily gets up to go to work. But he pauses at the front door. Does he turn and say, I'm sorry? Does he go over and kiss Ellen? Good night? No. He turns to her and he says, Goodbye, Ellen. Not see you later, not I'll call you, but goodbye, Ellen. I don't think this implicates Steve. In fact, Steve is pretty much the only character in this entire episode who we don't suspect. But it does, unfortunately, foreshadow our conclusion. After Steve leaves, we get a close-up shot of that door, that vulnerable-looking door with the key sitting in the keyhole. Ellen goes over and locks the door. She makes a little motion with her finger across the doorframe in the door, imagining a door chain there. Then she telephones Mr. Gibbons at the hardware store, asking if he could send someone who could put that chain on, and he says he will. But then, as our familiar oh-no-he-didn't sting plays softly in the background, we get another close-up of that door, and this time the doorknob is turning. Somebody's trying to get in. Ellen asks who it is, and it's Mrs. Stone, who maybe has a habit of walking right into Ellen's apartment. That's certainly what she tries to do here. Mrs. Stone offers to stay with Ellen, but Ellen turns her down. And then we get a repeat of what Mrs. Stone said earlier about who gets murdered and who doesn't. But this time she adds a little something extra that she read in the newspaper. Well, you kind of acted so funny before. I thought you might be afraid to stay alone, didn't like to say so. But if you're not nervous about it. Well, of course I'm nervous about it. Isn't everybody, aren't you? No. I have nothing to be nervous about. You don't get murdered without a reason. As a matter of fact, some of the papers said it might be a woman who killed them. Some woman who was jealous about her husband getting involved with other women. Oh, that's about as silly as all the theories in the newspapers. I don't know. I can't say I'd blame her if it's true. Women like that deserve anything that happens to them. So there you go. Just in case you thought Mrs. Stone would not be a suspect because she's a woman, the creeper might be a woman. I don't think Ellen really planned to go out anywhere, but this unnerving conversation with Mrs. Stone has prompted her to take that ticket that Steve left to the shoemaker. But we meanwhile move to a bar where Steve is having a beer before work. As GenreSnaps.com says in its review of this episode, perhaps that explains why Steve didn't get that raise. Steve is at the bar, and he is joined by Ed, a friend of his, who is a newspaper reporter. How's everything in the newspaper, Ragged? Dull. 
Unless our friend here knocks off somebody else pretty soon, he'll be pushed off the front page. You mean the creeper? Running out of things to say about him. Even running out of theories. Next, he'll be running out of women. <laughs> well, you think that's real funny, don't you? But Ellen's practically hysterical, just like every other woman in the neighborhood. Well, they don't have much excitement. Have to make the most of something like this. Brother, what a weird sense of humor you've got. Warped is the word you're looking for. Used to bother Ellen, too. Well, sure, it'd bother anybody. Now, you know, Ed, I don't think either one of us are a bargain, but I think Ellen's better off married to me. So we learned several things in that conversation. We learned that Ed was formerly involved with Ellen. We also learned that he's warped, setting him up as a possible suspect. And we get the feeling that Steve is starting to feel bad about the argument he had before he left the apartment. We don't have to wonder about that for long. He lays it right out for us. And his reasons for being testy are exactly what we thought they were. I got up feeling rough and took it out on her. Oh, this weather, it's hot, it's sticky. What's the matter with it? I kind of like it. Yeah, you would. Nah, I guess it's not the weather. I was looking for a raise and I didn't get it. Took it out on her. Yeah. Why do we do it, Ed? Why do we take it out on somebody else? Especially someone you love. Very simple. Simple? No one else will put up with it. Yeah, I guess you're right. All right, don't worry about it. Everybody takes out his grudges on somebody else. Usually the wrong person. Take our friend here. He takes it out by killing the woman he's got something to do. Oh, I didn't go that far. Hey, you think they'll catch this guy anyways near soon? Who knows? Haven't got much to go on. But the only connection between those two women was they were both alone at night and they were both blonde. What's the matter? Oh, nothing. I, I was just thinking. Ellen's alone and she's blonde. Not only that, she's no longer safe in her apartment. She's off at the shoemaker's. But before we join her there, we have now been introduced to all three of the actors who got top of the title credits. Let's take a look at them. Constance Ford plays Ellen, and she was born Cornelia M. Ford in the Bronx. Wikipedia says she initially worked as a model for the Montgomery Ward catalog when she was 15 years old, and her face became famous in the Elizabeth Arden 1941 advertising campaign for Victory Red Lipstick. She appeared on Broadway in the initial 1949 run of Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman, playing Miss Forsyth. According to Sparknotes, Miss Forsyth and Letta were two young women whom Happy and Biff met at Frank's Chop House. It seems likely that Miss Forsyth and Letta are prostitutes, judging from Happy's repeated comments about their moral character and the fact that they are on call. It's possible that this role led to her television career, which began in 1950. Wikipedia says that as a Warner Brothers contract player, she had her most famous role as Sandra Dee's heartless mother in A Summer Place, in which her abused husband, Richard Egan, had a memorable scene telling her off for her outdated prejudices, and Ford arranges for Dee to be tested for her virginity. Another shocking scene had Ford slapping Dee so hard that she fell into a Christmas tree, which toppled over on her. IMDb notes that she is best known for playing recurring characters in four afternoon serials. She was Rose Peabody in Search for Tomorrow, Lynn Sherwood in Woman with a Past, 
Eve Morris in The Edge of Night, and Ada Davis Downs Hobson in Another World. All right, I had a few drinks, all right? Well, I hope you like the taste, because you're going to have to remember it. It stops now, and so does the credit card binge. Oh, come on, and that makes me public enemy number one. A credit card does not mean free money. Mom, they are blowing this thing way out of proportion. Oh, well, that's not what the bank happens to think. The bank tells me that you're bouncing checks. What? I can't believe they told you that. How dare they give you that privileged information? There ought to be a law against I'm your mother. I'm not some stranger who walked in off the street. But that doesn't give you the right to invade my privacy, Mom. You don't deserve any privacy. Your life is falling apart around your ears and you expect privacy? Mother, I am working a few things out. My life is not falling apart around my ears. You lied about going to Egypt. You lied about Arizona. You've lost your virginity. Mom, how did you find that out? Did you really think I didn't know? Do you think I am blind and stupid? What makes you kids think you can fool your parents all of the time about absolutely everything? Mother, I am an adult. You cannot... You are not an adult. You are a minor. You are 18 years old. You are my daughter, and you will do what I tell you to do. Constance appeared in that role for 2,398 episodes, running from 1967 to 1992. When she left the show in 1992, due to declining health, her character was said to be out of town. When Constance died, her character also died off-screen, and the show had a tribute to her that featured many vintage flashbacks. Now, aside from the soap operas, Constance was in three episodes of Perry Mason. She was in a number of westerns, including Rawhide, Gunsmoke, and Wanted Dead or Alive, and comedies like Father Knows Best and The Phil Silver Show. But for we anthology fans, it's nice to know that she was in the Lights Out episode, Twist of Fate, the suspense episode, The Man in the Mirror, two Inner Sanctum episodes, The Yellow Parakeet and Ghost Mail, two thriller episodes, Twisted Image, the pilot, and Worse Than Murder, the Way Out episode, I Heard You Calling Me, and the Twilight Zone episode, Uncle Simon. I'm going out, Frankenstein. If you need anything, like a can of lubricant, get it yourself. You must not leave. Mr. Schwimmer is coming tonight. A week has gone by. Isn't Mr. Schwimmer coming Yes, Mr. Schwimmer is coming. He'll be here at 8 o'clock. Good. Good? Good for what? He will see that I am functioning properly. You see, I am like an infant. I am maturing gradually. Soon I will have all my faculties. I will be able to perform all my functions. I will be a whole being. How nice. How perfectly grand. How exciting. You'll be a whole being. Then what will happen? I will take on human attributes. Constance's co-star in that episode, though not heard in that scene, is Cedric Hardwick, whom we will see two episodes from now. Constance is in two total episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Her next and last is Outlaw in Town, Episode 7 
of season six. And Constance Ford died in 1993 at the age of 69. Steve Brody plays Steve. He was born John Stevenson. IMDb says he was born John Doherty Stevens. And he took his stage name, Steve Brody, from the man who claimed to have jumped from the Brooklyn Bridge in 1886 and survived. Here's what Wikipedia has to say about that Steve Brody. By July 1886, Brody was penniless, having lost a fortune on racetracks and other betting games. With the consent of his wife, the jump supposedly made by Brody on July 23, 1886, was from a height of 135 feet, the same as a 14-story building. The New York Times backed his account of the jump and said that Brody practiced for the leap by making shorter jumps from other bridges and ships' masts and that it was witnessed by two reporters. He leaped into the East River feet first and emerged uninjured, though with pain on his right side. He was jailed after the jump. The Times described Brody as a newsboy and long-distance pedestrian who jumped from the bridge to win a $200 bet. In other accounts, he is described as a bookmaker and gambler. A Bowery storekeeper named Isaac Myers claimed that he encouraged Brody to jump off the Brooklyn Bridge after Brody said that he wanted to be famous. Doubt whether Brody actually made the claim jump arose immediately and has lingered to this day. The Brooklyn Eagle reported in 1930 that a retired police sergeant and friend of Brody, Thomas K. Hastings, said that Brody had told him that he didn't make the leap and never said he did. In his book, The Great Bridge, historian David McCullough says that he probably did not make the jump. McCullough said that it was commonly believed by skeptics that a dummy was dropped from the bridge and that Brody merely swam out from shore and surfaced beside a passing barge. Our Steve Brody was born in Kansas, dropped out of school and raced cars, boxed, and worked on oil rigs. When he decided to try to make it as an actor, he went to New York and was essentially unsuccessful, though IMDb has this quote from him about the changing of his name. I couldn't get arrested in New York. Then I got an idea. Why not come up with a name that people will remember and possibly even want to exploit? The next time I went to a tryout, I told the fella taking names that I was Steve Brody. Are you any relation to the guy who jumped off the Brooklyn Bridge? Yes, I answered. He was my uncle. We're both considered the black sheep of the family. And the following morning, I received a phone call telling me I had the job. Steve fared much better in Hollywood, where he appeared in a number of B-movies, westerns, and film noirs. He mostly played tough guys and appeared in 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, The Clock, Anchors Away, and The Cane Mutiny, as well as the science fiction films The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms and Donovan's Brain. His westerns included The Arizona Ranger, Guns of Hate, and Brothers in the Saddle, and his film noirs included Desperate, Crossfire, and perhaps most notably, Out of the Past. Hello, Jeff. Don't I get introduced? I don't blame you, Jeff. Maybe I'd lied my head off just like you did. Your picture don't do you justice, baby. Why don't you break his head, Jeff? Cute. Which should have got her back. What I understand, they deserve each other. You working for him now? Who else would he get to find my partner? All right, Fisher, what's the pitch? You and I had a little deal, Jeff. Ten grand in expenses. 
50-50. Remember? You used to have a good memory. Whatever happened to it? I didn't collect. Not the 10 grand. If I can give you a tip. You tell Whit where we are. He might slip you a saw book. Jeff. He isn't going to tell Whit anything. Sure not. You just come up with that 40 grand and we're all pals again. I might even cut you in for a piece of it. There isn't any 40 grand. Of course, Whit's broad-minded. He don't care about a few slugs in the stomach or the 40 grand the dame went off with. Or even Jeff pretending he fell down on the job. But you and Jeff ganging up together, he might not like that. Tell him, Kathy. Sure, I shot him. I'm not sorry about that. But I didn't take his money. Beat it. Look at all the angles. You know Whit and you know how far he can reach. So just pay me off and I'm quiet. But use cash. Don't try to pay me off with pitch handed to you with this cheap piece of baggage. I was hoping you'd do this. The sound of those punches without the accompanying video is sort of hilarious. Moving to TV, Steve appeared in the westerns Gunsmoke, Daniel Boone, Bonanza, A Man Called Shenandoah, Death Valley Days, Rawhide, Sugarfoot, and The Virginian. He's in Perry Mason, the science fiction theater episodes Dead Reckoning and The Long Day, and the thriller episode The Fatal Impulse. Just like that. Just like that, George. Some innocent girl blown to pieces, and I had to have one of my lousy hunches. You take these things too personal, Brian. You know, I've noticed lately you take it on yourself for every case we work on. What's with you? Maybe I just don't live right, huh? You sure don't. It's been six years since Amy passed away. I'll bet you haven't been out with a woman in that whole time. Come off it. All right, Amy was the greatest. But life goes on, a guy's got to keep punching. Look at Jenny and me. When we lost a little girl, I thought the whole world had been kicked right out from underneath me. We had to pick up the pieces and keep going on. Now, we got the new little one, and everything's great again. That's so funny. Wouldn't it be great if you found this girl with a bomb in her purse, and she turned out to be a big, beautiful, luscious thing, and, well, the two of you decided to... Would that be something, huh? George, my boy. You ought to write for TV, you know. In the 60s, he was in two Elvis Presley movies, Blue Hawaii and Roustabout. And as the 60s moved into the 70s, he began appearing in what IMDb calls campy, low-budget films, including a couple lampooned by Mystery Science Theater 3000, The Wild World of Batwoman, and The Giant Spider Invasion. Thank you. Oh, all hell's broken loose. It's going to be hard to keep the lid on now. Yeah, we know all about it, Sheriff. May I have another one, please? Yeah, sure. Uh -huh. My yeah. stomach is doing flip-flops. We just brought back what was left of Joe Cooper. He's the Irpy Sheriff with the delicate constitution. Uh, Sheriff, 
if your stomach can handle it. I'd like to show you my vasectomy scar. <laughs> We've got a 50-foot spider out there on the loose. 50-foot spider? Actually, yeah, it's he... a furry dune buggy. You mean that's what got Joe Cooper? Looks like our black hole has turned into a open doorway from hell. Sorry, I mean open doorway from hell. We're going to have to find a way to close it. His son, Kevin Brody, is also in that film, and he is currently a producer. IMDb says that Steve's later years were marred by drinking arrests, and he died in 1992 at the age of 72. This is his first of four Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearances. His next is One More Mile to Go, episode 28 of season two. And here's one more quote, courtesy of IMDb. Everybody wants to be a leading man, but early on I discovered it is much better to be a heavy because you work more. When a part was given to me, I went at it hard. If I had my life to live over again, I wouldn't change a thing. I've had a ball. Harry Towns, who plays Ed, is probably the most recognizable of our threesome. He was born in Huntsville, Alabama, and began acting when he was at the University of Alabama. He later moved to New York to study acting at Columbia, eventually landing roles on Broadway, including in Tobacco Road, Twelfth Night, and as a leprechaun in Finian's Rainbow. After serving in World War II in the U.S. Army Air Corps, he moved to Hollywood, and became a popular character actor with more than 200 roles on television in Perry Mason, Gunsmoke, The Fugitive, Quincy, Magnum P.I., Knott's Landing, Charlie's Angels, Planet of the Apes, Kung Fu, The Sixth Sense, and more other shows than I could ever mention here. But there was more to Harry's life than acting. This is from an article on itsabouttv.com called The Remarkable Life of Harry Towns. While he was in his 30s, his sister Jean was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Jean was told by several doctors that she had a terminal illness, he said, and x-rays bore them out. And then one night, she had a vision. Towns didn't go into the details of the vision, but the next morning when she awoke, she knew she was cured. Tests and x-rays followed, but her healing had been as complete as it was sudden. Doctors found not one trace of cancer. I knew then, he said, that there was a power above man's comprehension and that I was destined to enter the religious field. He began taking philosophy courses at UCLA. Then, while continuing his acting career, he put himself through seminary at the Bishop Bloy School of Theology in Los Angeles. He was ordained as a transitional deacon in 1973, and then at age 59, and after 10 years of study, he became Father Harry Towns in a ceremony at St. Paul's Episcopal Cathedral in Los Angeles on March 16, 1974. He was a non-stipendary priest, meaning he would continue to earn his living as an actor and would take no salary as a priest. There was, he felt, no conflict between acting and the priesthood. The theater, too, is for goodness, truth, and beauty, he said. For his first assignment, Father Towns was sent to St. Stephen's in Hollywood, where he worked with alcoholics, dope addicts, and prostitutes, as well as those in need of spiritual help. This is not my permanent parish, he explained to a journalist. I might be assigned to other parishes at any given moment, and this is the way I desire it. I still want to continue my life as an actor, as well as serving my fellow man. Harry retired from acting in 1989, and he moved back to his hometown of Huntsville, Alabama, dying in the same place where he was born. Now, Harry was in plenty of episodes for those of us of the anthology 
science fiction, and horror bent. He was in two episodes of Tales of Tomorrow, Test Flight, and Youth on Tap. Two episodes of Suspense, The Man Who Wouldn't Talk, and String. Three episodes of The Inner Sanctum, Watcher by the Dead, Queen of Spades, and Dream of Murder. One episode of Suspicion, The Deadly Game. Two episodes of One Step Beyond, The Bride Possessed, and Anniversary of a Murder. Two episodes of Thriller, The Cheaters, and Dark Legacy. One episode of the 1960s show called Suspense, I, Donald Roberts. The Outer Limits episode, Obit, and the Night Gallery episode, Lindemann's Catch. He was in the two-part episode of The Incredible Hulk, entitled The First, playing Del Fry, a character who has recently been incorporated into the comic books in the series Immortal Hulk. But when it comes to using clips, I always like to return to Star Trek The Original Series, where he appears in Return of the Archons. He'll be coming around soon, Captain. He must not. He's been absorbed. Absorbed? The body absorbs its enemies. It only kills when it has to. When the first Archons came, they were free, out of control, opposing the will of Landru. Many were killed. Many more were absorbed. When he regains consciousness, Landru will find us through him. And if the others come... What others? Those like you and me, who resist Landru. An underground. How are you organized? In threes. Myself, Tamar, who's dead now, and one other. Who? I don't know. Tamar was my contact. And to the Twilight Zone, where he is in two episodes, The Four of Us Are Dying and Shadow Play, which includes a scene so good, I have to play the whole thing. Hello, Grant. Hello, Mr. Ritchie. You don't seem surprised to see me. I'm not. You always come. I mean, uh, the district attorney always comes. It isn't always you. Grant. Yes? I take it you're sticking to this dream story of yours. That's right. It can't possibly do you any good now. You realize that. I should. After all this time, every night I explain. Every night it's the same. All right. Explain again. Well, it's very simple. When I die, you die. And everybody in this world dies because this world does not exist. It's a dream of mine. It's a nightmare. Can't you understand that? No, Grant, I can't understand it. Not because it's a new idea. I can't understand it or accept it because it doesn't make any kind of logical sense. But it does. It's the only thing that does make logical sense. You take you, for instance. Do you think you'd be visiting a man that was just about to be executed in real life? Of course not. They wouldn't allow you in here. Or you take me. You don't know any more about me now than you did when this thing started. I'm a stranger. There are a hundred vagrants in every town without names, without history. Stop that! We know you're mentally sound. And I don't think you're deliberately lying to me. I'm going to destroy that story of yours, Grant, now, once and for all. You say that all this is a dream. And that when you're electrocuted, you wake up. And when you wake up, 
We all disappear, right? That's right. What about our parents? And our parents' parents and everybody who never even heard of you? Well, what about them, Mr. Ritchie? A, a dream builds its own world, Mr. Ritchie. It's complete. With a past and as long as you stay asleep, a future. What about us, then, when we sleep and dream? Or is that when you're supposed to be up and around? You only sleep and dream because I dream you that way. All right. Now answer me this. You're scared now. Why? Why are you scared? You've got to wake up sometime, even if you're electrocuted. So why don't you just sit back and enjoy it? <laughs> enjoy it. Let me tell you something, Mr. Ritchie. How, how soundly do you sleep? What's that got to Well, I mean, you dream, don't you? Certainly, sometimes. Well, haven't you ever been hurt in one of those dreams? Haven't you ever fallen out of a window or, or been drowned or tortured? You have. Well, don't you remember how real that it seemed? Remember how you woke up screaming? Well, let me ask you something, Mr. Ritchie. How do you like to wake up screaming every night? That's what I do. Because I dream the same dream night after night after night. It's this one. It changes a little bit. The people get twisted around, but it's the same dream. You've got to believe me. I can't go on dying. I can't go on dying. I can't. I can't. I'm telling the truth, Mr. Ritchie. Please. Let me live and I'll, I'll keep you alive. I'll dream you every night just like this. Wait a minute. I'll prove it to you. Your wife, she has a steak cooking for you. Go home, look in the oven. It'll be something else. Please. Well? What's wrong, Hank? That's a roast. What about it? Hank, what about it? Harry Towns is in one other episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents and two episodes of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. His next is My Brother Richard, episode 17 of season two. And Harry Towns died in 2001 at the age of 86. Now back to our episode where Ellen is at the Shoemakers. The Shoemaker is played by Alfred Linder. We saw him once before. He was the neighbor in the window in episode 18, Shopping for Death. This is his second and last appearance. He ogles Ellen as she enters and then makes a comment about the creeper. Do you hear the latest about the creeper? Police seem to think he's a man who works locally around here. Could be someone we know. Which immediately puts him on the suspect list. The suspicion increases when he tells Ellen that the shoes are not ready and says that he would deliver them to her if she gives him her address. What do you need that for? I thought I'd drop them over myself after I close my store. Oh, well, that won't be necessary. I'll come back. That's no trouble at all, Miss. No, please, don't bother. Really, it's no trouble Just at all. Just don't bother. As Ellen leaves, the camera lingers on the shoemaker. He gets a wry smile on his face. He still has the ticket for the shoes that she gave him, and he sort of nibbles on it a little bit making him seem more suspicious than ever. It's now raining outside and dark, the environment now reflecting Ellen's emotions as she walks back to her apartment. The camera stays out in the rain as she enters the outer door 
and we see her through the door's window as she unlocks the inner door. But then it switches to darkness as we are inside the inner door, and the light comes in as she comes in. But now we can see the outer door from the other side, and we see a dark silhouette through the window. Panicked, Ellen drops her pocketbook, and then goes and tries to hide behind the banister of the stairs leading up. Then, instead, she moves over against a wall, her back to us, cowering, as she ends up pinned in a spotlight in a sort of reverse angle look from Laura frozen in the car's headlights in episode 34, The Hidden Thing, which was also scripted by James P. Cavanaugh. The spotlight turns out to be a flashlight, and the menacing silhouette turns out to be the same as a shadow we have seen before. It's only me, Mrs. Grant. George, there's nothing to be scared about. Maybe you'll feel better if I give you a little light. There. I'll leave this door open while I put in a new bulb. So the interior now also reflects Ellen's emotions as the light bulb in the hallway has burned out. George comes to the rescue. He has a spare bulb. He has a flashlight. He is bringing light to the darkness, which seems to put him on the side of good. On the other hand, we just had that menacing silhouette as George came in from outside. What was he doing outside if all he was doing was changing a light bulb? Which makes him suspicious again. Ellen doesn't even talk to him. She picks up her pocketbook, heads to her apartment, lets herself in, and locks the door. The phone rings as she enters, and she goes to answer it with lightning and thunder, still reflecting her mood outside. It's Mr. Gibbons from the hardware store, telling her he has finally found someone who can come over to put the chain lock on her door. And after she hangs up, a light comes on in her apartment. It's Ed, leaning up against a pillar and calmly smoking a cigarette, seemingly unaware of the intense fright he has just caused. Ellen turns away from him, and the camera follows her down to focus in on her terrified face. It's time for the commercial, after which Ed approaches her and says, You look like that woman in that story. Thought she was locking murder out all the time she's locking him in. Which is not very comforting. Ellen asks how he got in. Newspaper men get in everywhere, didn't you know that? Which is also not comforting. But it does emphasize that her door is not safe. Of course, a chain wouldn't have done her any good in this situation anyway, since Ed got in while she was out of the apartment. He tells her he's there to keep her company and protect her, but she just wants him to go. And when she tells him how frightened and sick she is, he, once again, is not very comforting. If you're trying to frighten me, don't bother. I'm frightened enough already. Of the creeper? I don't even know anymore. Maybe I'm getting sick again. Everything scares me. And that poor little shoemaker looks so strange to me. You know, I've got a theory. Maybe the creeper isn't strange looking at all. I bet he's mild and pleasant, just like anyone else. Maybe he even looks just like me. Gee, thanks, Ed. You're already in the list of suspects. You don't need to push it. But he hasn't even begun. After he tells Ellen that he's there because Steve sent him, which she doesn't believe, he turns on the radio and insists that they dance. And when she doesn't want to, he grabs her. It turns out he still has a thing for her. And Ellen reveals to him that even though she was crazy about him, she left him for a very specific reason. You like to hurt people, don't you? 
remember how frightened I was the first time I realized that. Is that why you walked out on me? That's one of the reasons. You never bothered to explain. You just walked out. I thought you could probably figure it out for yourself. Yeah. Well, you were wrong. I couldn't. Oh. What were the other reasons? Ed, it was two years ago. I want ago. to know. All right, I'll tell you you want to know. There's something wrong with you, Ed. Wrong. So after we've heard from Steve that Ed is warped, now we hear from Ellen that there's something wrong with Ed. This script is trying very hard to make us think that Ed is the creeper. And it's doing a pretty good job. There's something I wouldn't face, too. Not for a long time. As a matter of fact, not until just this afternoon. I would never admit even to myself that I hated you. I've had a grudge against you ever since you walked out on me. As I was saying to your esteemed husband just this afternoon, sooner or later you have to take on a grudge. The creeper does it by killing. Did you know that? <laughs> Ed grabs her forcefully by the wrists and then quickly moves so that he's holding her around the waist. And when she threatens to scream, he turns the radio up so no one can hear her. We can hear her. It's a very disturbing scene as Ellen thrashes back and forth in Ed's arms. The neighbors may not hear the scream, but they hear the radio. So there's quickly a knock at the door, and Ed is just as quickly repentant. Ellen, are you all right? I'm sorry. I've waited so long to do this, and now I wish I hadn't done it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Ed goes to answer the door, and it's George, with Mrs. Stone, hands on hips, observing in the background. George says, They're complaining about your radio playing so loud. But the they in that sentence is pretty clearly Mrs. Stone. It's a wonderfully framed shot. From left to right, George just inside the doorway, Mrs. Stone across the hall back at her door, Ed having opened the door, and Ellen next to Ed insisting that he leave. When Ed does leave, we're down to three. Same shot with Mrs. Stone watching Ed go, even as he's left the frame, as Ellen asks George if she'll pick up her husband's shoes. George agrees and leaves, and we're down to two. At this point, Mrs. Stone leaves the background and approaches Ellen's door. You two, just like all the others. Uh, what do you mean by that? Oh, very innocent, aren't you? You ought to be ashamed of yourself the minute your husband's back is turned out trying to make a living for you. You don't know what you're talking about. Oh, don't I? Well, I've got eyes in my head, haven't I? But I'd watch my step if I were you, milady. Women like you always get what they deserve in the end. You're disgusting. Oh, to the likes of you, maybe. But just remember what happened to those other two. And as we dissolve to a shot of Ellen's window with rain on it, it's time to consider who our suspects are. Well, everybody, because we are living with Ellen's fear and Ellen's suspicion. So Mrs. Stone, Ed, even George and the Shoemaker are people to be feared and distrusted. But there's one person that Ellen is not thinking about as a suspect. And I don't mean Steve. And the hope is that we, the audience, buried within the darkness, and the shadows, and the rain will not think of that person either. And yet I think many of us do. So the camera pulls back to show us Ellen sitting by the window, staring outside. 
And poor Ellen, who has been buffeted about by knocks on the door and phones ringing and Ed breaking into her apartment when she's not home, has to confront another knock at her door. This time it's George telling her he has her husband's shoes. But Ellen asks him to leave them outside, only to retrieve them as soon as George is gone. And even as she does that, her buzzer sounds. This is something we haven't really considered. There is that inner door, which you can't get through unless you're buzzed in. Realistically, the only people who should be able to get to her apartment are people who already live in that apartment building. Now granted, Ed got in, but it could well be that Ellen is safe enough already. It is rather her very fear that prompts her to let the man in who has identified himself as the locksmith. She then unlocks her door, and then the phone rings, again distracting her, pulling her away from the door. It's Steve, and he apologizes for his behavior earlier in the day. Oh, is Ed still there? Ed, did you send him? Well, sure, honey, to, to keep you company. Keep me company, huh? Well, I finally got rid of him. I, I wished you hadn't have. Look, honey, will you be careful? And, and promise me you won't let anybody in the apartment till I get home, all right? All right, don't worry, I won't. Anyway, it's all right now. The locksmith's here to put the chain on. Ellen. Wait a minute, Steve. Ellen. She puts the shoe package down on the table, then the phone on top of the shoes, and the camera stays with that shot as she goes to let the locksmith in. Honey, who'd you just let in the apartment? The locksmith to put the chain on the door. He finally got here. A locksmith? Ellen, didn't you hear the radio broadcast? Well, what are you talking about? It was just on the radio. The police are looking for a locksmith. Honey, they think he's the one that killed those women. Ellen! Ellen! Ellen, are you there? We never see the locksmith, except for his hand, as it clamps over Ellen's mouth. We do hear his voice, but the actor isn't credited. In the end, he's just a force of violence, as elusive and insubstantial as George's shadow on the wall. The teleplay here is by James Cavanaugh, his second of 15 for the show after episode 34, The Hidden Thing. He joins Herschel Doherty for his next one, Fog Closing In, episode 2 of season 2. And James has made a number of changes from the story by Joseph Ruskall, which isn't really a story at all. Just like our last episode, Decoy, the story is actually a radio play. This was true for the previous episode, based on Joseph Ruskall's work, episode 14, A Bullet for Baldwin. But whereas Ruskall's radio play, Five Bullets for Baldwin, seems to have only been performed once, with no recording still existing, The Creeper was much more popular, and was, to most appearances, the highlight of his career. In his blog of the episode at barebonesez.blogspot.com, Jack Seabrook does a great job of separating out the different versions of the story and pointing out where they agree and where they differ. He also gives us the backstory 
because Joseph Ruskell's original Mole Mystery Theater radio script was based on real events. Jack writes that in 1945, in Chicago, while soldiers were still far away and their wives and girlfriends were making the best of things on the home front, a woman named Josephine Ross was found stabbed to death in her apartment on June 5th. The murder went unsolved, and on December 10th, a second murder in Chicago took place. That murder of a woman named Frances Brown was a spectacular news event because written on the wall of her apartment in lipstick was the message, for heaven's sake, catch me before I kill more. I cannot control myself. A third murder followed when six-year-old Suzanne Degnan's body was found in pieces after she had been reported missing from her family's apartment on January 7, 1946. Now, Joseph Roskull's script was broadcast on March 29, 1946. At the time of that broadcast, the Chicago murders were not solved. So Joseph Roskull came up with his own solution. The killer was a locksmith. He also moved the setting to New York City and compressed the time from months down into days. It was later that year in the summer when the police in Chicago finally made an arrest, and 17-year-old William Hirons was sentenced to life in prison. He was not a locksmith. The main thing that tied the real-life murders to Joseph Ruskell's radio script was the plea to stop me before I kill again, a plea that James Cavanaugh completely eliminates for the Hitchcock version. The radio play does not begin with George and Mrs. Stone out on the stoop, but with Steve Grant and his wife, here called Georgia, listening to a radio broadcast. New York. The unknown killer called the Creeper has struck again, adding a third female corpse to his toe. Virginia Peters, a comely waitress, was found strangled to death in her third floor apartment early this morning while her radio blared. As in the previous murders, a note was found scrawled on the wall with the victim's lipstick and the plea, for heaven's sake, catch me before I kill more. I cannot control myself. Police insist... Oh. Why'd you turn it off? How awful. How awful. As in our episode, the couple bicker, and Steve leaves the apartment. But there are a few differences. Steve, whose job is never specified in the TV episode, is a policeman who has been suspended because of, of all things, his overeating. And the lock on their apartment door is not insufficient, it's actually broken. Possibly tampered with, maybe by the creeper, as he plans out his murders. The apartment here is more high-end. As Steve puts it... Keep a doorman here, an elevator boy, Mrs. Stone across the hall, a phone. The problem is that Georgia was previously a celebrity. She was on the stage. And that she's so beautiful that men come on to her all the time. This includes the doorman and the elevator boy. Good afternoon, ma'am. Oh. Out shopping? Oh, I... You're the new doorman, huh? Yeah, just relieving Charlie. Uh, nice weather out. Uh, help you with your packages? Uh, no, thank you. Uh, let me ring the elevator for you. No, you don't have to trouble. Oh, no trouble, ma'am. There. Apartment 4D, huh? Why, yes. How'd you know? <laughs> Doesn't take long. Going now? Oh, yes, yes. Up and down, up and down. The ups and downs of life, that's me. I'm a living milkshake, Mrs. Grant. Ah. Uh-oh. What's wrong, Jimmy? Stuck. <laughs> Imagine getting stuck between the second and third with a production like you. 
Get going, Sonny. Do you want me to report you? <laughs> okay, okay. Can't you take a joke? Maybe I, uh, I misconstrued that smile you always give me. Maybe you should not have smiled that way. So the people that Steve thinks are protecting Georgia are actually more suspects. Meanwhile, Steve is down at the bar with his friend Pearlie Chase, the character we know as Ed in the episode, and they speculate as to who the creeper might be. Steve thinks that the creeper could be a woman because he uses an expression, for heaven's sake, that he thinks only women use. But Pearlie has a more sophisticated theory. The victims are all redheads, every one. You've noticed that, of course. Three and three days. Now that you... They all lived in the Heights, right? Agnes Martin, Jane Krusty, Selma Davis. Right. What was the number of the apartment in each case? <laughs> Agnes lived in 1A. Jane, 2B. Selma, 3C. Don't ask me the why or the wherefore. Don't ask me the logic. Just play along crazy. You see what I mean? See where he's going to strike next? Mm. Oh, get with The you. next victim of the creeper lives in the Heights. She's a redhead. Her nightlock's been tampered with. She's going to get hers today. And her apartment number is 4D. Well, why are you staring at me? You don't like my arithmetic? Why are you staring? My wife's a redhead, Pearlie. We live in the Heights. Our apartment number is... <laughs> ah, you're just a boozy reporter. Of course, we were previously told that the third victim was Virginia Peters, not Selma Davis. But never mind. Much of the rest is the same. Georgia goes to the druggist, not the shoemaker, but he also flirts with her. Mrs. Stone suggests that the creeper might be a woman, scaring Georgia away from her. And Pearlie, like Ed, shows up at her apartment because Steve asked him to. But he has, like Ed, a prior history with her. Here he accuses her of having an affair with Mr. Stone. And then he forces her to dance. Tells her he could kill her and get away with it. I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, you lovely redhead. I could kill you and you deserve it. With the radio on, you could scream and nobody would hear. I could put my hand on your throat like this, see? And I could strangle you. And also tells her that she will be the creeper's next victim. In a few minutes, there'll be a knock or a ring or the door will just open, see? And you'll be lying in a pool of blood just like the other three. Goodbye, my worthless. Give my regards to the creeper. Georgia is so terrified that she will let no one else into her apartment except, unfortunately, the locksmith. As in the Hitchcock episode, she is on the phone with her husband when the locksmith shows up. But unlike the Hitchcock episode, we actually witness the murder so that we can get the tagline that James Cavanaugh has eliminated. Honey, I know it sounds cockeyed, I mean, Burley's theory, but I was a bit worried when I got to thinking, so listen, Georgia, don't let anyone in the house till I get home. I won't see you. Not anyone, you hear? Not anyone. What? Oh, oh wait, you. Hello. Oh, wait, Steve, it's... Oh, thank goodness, at last now I can breathe easy. Just a minute, dear. Hello, Georgia. Georgia, hello. Hello. Georgia. Oh, thank goodness Georgia, it's come. Please step in. It's the lock on this door hello. I want. Uh, please, just a moment. Hello. My husband's on the phone. Steve? What happened? Something else I wanted to... Oh, it's all right. Everything's all right now, Steve. You needn't worry. Didn't I just hear you talking to someone? that someone at the door? It was no one, Steve. Just Mr. Frank, the locksmith. Oh, what a load of... The locksmith, of... Georgia, listen. Listen, Georgia, that's what I was going to tell you. What is it? The police 
police are on a new trail. They think maybe a locksmith. Georgie, you listening? It may be that the creep was a locksmith. Get him out, quick. What nice lipstick you use, Mrs. Grant. <laughs> before I kill more. For heaven's sake. And then there's an ending that doesn't appear in the Hitchcock episode at all. Perhaps Hitchcock's retribution in his outro takes care of it, as the creeper is caught by, of all people, the sleazy elevator boy. And just in case you haven't gotten it, Pearly, in our epilogue, drums the irony of it all into our heads. Hello, city desk. Pearly Chase. Now shut up and listen. On that creeper story I just gave you, I had this dope. The reward for his capture goes to the elevator boy. He heard Georgia Grant scream and called a cop. The creeper was shot running from the building. Yeah, it's ironical, isn't it? Imagine the locksmith was the killer. The one man Georgia thought would protect you. What an ending to a lovely, lovely redhead. Pearly doesn't sound very sorry about it, does he? Sounds almost like he's gloating. It makes you wonder what the moral is here. Don't be too beautiful. Don't trust anybody. Don't wear that flashy lipstick that you wore on the stage. You're using stage lipstick. I'll wipe it off. How many times must I tell you? Whatever it is, the creeper proved popular enough to reappear eight months later, this time on the radio series Murder at Midnight. The script is pretty much the same. Except that, as Jack Seabrook points out, it omits the final scene, where Pearly Chase reports the capture of the Creeper. Otherwise, it's very familiar. New York. The unknown killer called the Creeper has struck again, adding a third female corpse to his toll. Virginia Peters, a comely waitress, was found strangled to death in her third-floor apartment early this morning, while her radio blared. As in the previous murders, a note was found scrawled on the wall with the victim's lipstick and the plea, for heaven's sake, catch me before I kill more. I cannot control myself. Police insist... Now, why'd you turn it off? Oh, how awful. But here, the script is already considered to be a classic. And now, Murder at Midnight. On this program, we bring you the best and most blood-curdling stories ever written. And so now we bring you a tale which you may have heard before. A tale which we consider a classic in terror and suspense. The Creeper by Joseph Ruskall. Jack tells us that a second broadcast on Mole Mystery Theater followed on April 11, 1947, but this version has been lost. The Creeper was then adapted for the television show Suspense and aired on April 19, 1949. This early TV show has not survived. It was back to the radio for the next adaptation, which aired on Murder by Experts on July 18, 1949. This version dramatizes the third murder in the opening scene. (laughs) So like I'm telling you, Gladys, I'm waiting on my table, paying no attention to this guy. I can see, of course, that he's giving me the eye, but good. What does he look like? Oh, he was the Gary Cooper type. Oh, lanky and sunburned, bashful, too. Anyway, he's sitting at one of my tables, trying to get up nerve enough to start a conversation. I'm polite, but nothing else. Well, it's 2 a.m., and we're getting ready to close the place. 
when he finally speaks his piece. What did he say, Virginia? What did he say? Oh, that he was from out of town, and this was his first visit to New York, and... Oh. And what? And what, Jenny? Gladys, I think somebody's trying to get into my apartment. What? Here, the... The doorknob is turning. Oh, it's probably some drunk got the wrong apartment. Oh, he's... He's putting the key in the lock right now. So what? You've got your night lock on, haven't you? No, it's, it's broken. Gladys, I'm scared. There's nothing to worry about. He'll go away when he finds his key won't unlock the door. Gladys, the door is opening. What, what do you want? You, you got the wrong apartment. Jenny, what is it? Answer me. Get out of here. and alters the scene where Georgia, renamed Vicky, takes the elevator and fends off a pass by the elevator boy. Here, the elevator operator is older and less forward. The original ending is restored this time around, with Pearlie reporting the capture of the creeper. A second TV version followed on the series The Web on November 29, 1950. Unfortunately, this broadcast has been lost. The last radio version aired on a series called The Chase on January 25, 1953. The National Broadcasting Company invites you by transcription to join The Chase. There is always the hunter and the hunted, the pursuer and the pursued. It may be the voice of authority. Or a race with death and destruction, the most relentless of the hunters. There are times when laughter is heard as counterpoint, and moments when sheer terror is the theme. But always there is the chase. Sometimes our very pursuit of safety and security leads only to destruction. For one of the most exciting chase stories ever written in radio, the National Broadcasting Company now brings you Joseph Ruskall's famous thriller, The Creeper. New York, the unknown killer called The Creeper has struck again, adding a third female corpse to his toll. Virginia Peters, a comely waitress, was found strangled to death in her third-floor apartment early this morning while her radio blared. As in the previous murders, a note was found scrawled on the wall with the victim's lipstick and the plea, For heaven's sake, catch me before I kill more. I cannot control myself. <laughs> Police in... Hey, why'd you turn it off? And so on. Jack also tells us that in 1953, a book entitled The Bloody Spur was published. It was by Charles Einstein, and it fictionalized the story of William Herons and the Lipstick Killer murders in Chicago, though the novel, like the radio plays before it, moves the action to New York City. Lucy Freeman's nonfiction study of the murders, Before I Kill More, was published in 1955. And on May 16, 1956, While the City Sleeps, Fritz Lang's filmed adaptation of The Bloody Spur was released. Joseph Ruskell died in 1956, about five months after the Hitchcock episode aired. We don't know whether he saw the episode or not, but we do know that he was very protective of his story. 
and of his title. Now, I talked a little bit about Joseph Ruskall in my podcast on a bullet for Baldwin, so I won't repeat any of those details here, except one, and that is that Joseph Ruskall sued film producer Edward Small for using the Creeper title for his 1948 film, The Creeper, which featured among its cast our old friend John Barragray. That reminds me, just exactly what are Borden and your father doing? They thought it was possible to illuminate certain organs of the body. It would have been a great boon to surgery and internal medicine. Would have been. Didn't it work out? I don't know. Anyway, I'm sure not the way Dad expected. I guess not, if we can go by the IMDb description of the film. A man is turned into a cat-like killer by means of a serum invented by a crazed scientist. So that clearly isn't Joseph Ruskell's story. And yet Ruskell seemed to think that he had the rights to the name of the Creeper, even though the name of the Creeper had been used before Ruskell's radio show as, no less, the name of a mysterious strangler, played by Rondo Hatton in three different films, The Pearl of Death, The Brute Man, and House of Horrors. Remember the Dawson girl? You mean the one who was murdered up on Riverside Drive? That's right. Anything in this killing reminds you of that one? Sure it does. Dawson girl's spine was snapped too. Uh-huh. That was one of the Creeper's little jobs. This dame couldn't have been murdered by the Creeper. He's dead. So I read in the papers. But they didn't find his body when they dragged the river, did they? No, they didn't. So Ruskell's lawsuit seemed to be about using the Creeper as a title, not necessarily having a character called the Creeper. And according to Wikipedia, the suit was settled for an undisclosed sum. So Joseph Ruskell's use of the Creeper was not the first, and it's certainly not the last, what with the Jeepers Creepers films and with the 2012 film called Creeper. But he does have another link in the chain, and that is with a version of his story in the 1980s series of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. This episode stars Karen Allen of Animal House and Raiders of the Lost Ark fame. Oh! 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 Oh my God! Oh, Oh, Carol. What are you doing here? Oh. I thought you were supposed to be in Rome. Oh, I'm sorry the trip got canceled. I'm not going till the day after tomorrow. Sorry for the scare. That's okay. It's not your fault. Oh, God. Sometimes I wonder if this neighborhood is worth it. Me too. You still want me to water your plants, don't you? Uh, yeah, yeah. But, um, next week. I, I did them already. In his blog, Creeper, 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 You Give Me the Creeps, at section244.blogspot.com, Michael Hoskin writes, I don't really think a lot of the 1980s series, especially for the ways in which they altered the original stories. But much to my surprise, my highest recommendation out of the six versions I've experienced of The Creeper goes to the most recent one. It's extremely different from Ruskell's original script, keeping only the premise. But it makes one change which I wholeheartedly welcome. The heroine is in the forefront throughout the episode, until she dies. As a suspense fan, I feel these thrillers are more intense when they don't divert from the protagonist's point of view. And the scenes in the earlier versions of The Creeper, where the husband and reporter met up in the bar, were unfortunate decisions that only exist to exposit more about The Creeper. It's ultimately a story about a woman alone in her apartment, experiencing feelings of paranoia. If Ruskall had made that the entire script, he would have penned one of the best thrillers of the 1940s. 
1940s. There is also an unfortunate sense in Ruskell's script that the heroine's death is some kind of disproportionate retribution. Mention is made that the heroine is flirtatious and the husband is suspicious of her. Certainly the reporter is attracted to her and the elevator boy grumbles that she shouldn't be so nice to men like him. But this isn't otherwise supported by Ruskell's script. When the reporter barges in on the heroine, she's not the least bit glad to see him because she thinks he's the creeper. She drives him out. She's not some loose woman who should be punished. And this brings me back to the 1986 version, where the heroine isn't a married woman, just a single woman in an apartment. She's trying to get away on a trip to Rome when her neighbor is killed by the creeper. She had left her apartment keys with the neighbor so she could water her plants, and she's terrified when she sees the keys are missing from the dead woman's apartment. The heroine tries to get a locksmith in to change her locks before she leaves to Rome. At the same time, a man who dated her once has begun stalking her. The 1986 version really gets across the heroine's feeling of paranoia better than any of the earlier versions. As a lone woman, the audience is better able to sense her isolation. The only part of the 1986 version I'm not crazy about is what happens after the heroine dies. As the creeper gets into his car to leave, the dead woman's stalker appears and shoots the creeper in the chest. The creeper runs him over with the car before dying. It does serve to punish the creeper, but I'm not sure the crazy stalker is the right person to mete out vengeance. Then again, the stalker dies too. I guess it's a value-neutral outcome? It certainly ties up all the loose ends, while at the same time feeling extremely bleak. All the significant characters are dead. Good night. Now, I'm not going to rate all the versions of The Creeper, but I also do rather like the 1980s version, which is a big surprise to me. I actually like the ending of the stalker killing the Creeper and vice versa. And I like the fact that the Creeper has apparently taken Karen Allen's key. And I like the way the city is presented as this terrifying place for Karen during this time. Though I'm not especially fond of the dream sequence. But what I particularly like in this episode is that the locksmith is presented as a character before the final scene, something I think is really lacking in all the other versions. Here, he comes to put a lock on Karen's door at the same time as her stalker shows up. Lady, you've got one ancient dead bolt here. Sorry, the new one's not going to match. What does that mean? I mean, I can't fix it till tomorrow. Oh, no, I have to go to Rome in the morning. Oh, gee, I wish I was going to Rome. You mean there's no way you can fix it tonight? No, lady, I don't even have a saw for this job. Oh, oh all right, listen. What time's your flight? Well, I, I have to leave here by 10. All right, what if I come by around 8.30? Is that okay? I saw you come up. I knew you were up here. Who the hell are you? I'm the locksmith. Well, get the hell out of here, all right? So in this version, the locksmith seems like he's the protector. The stalker is the dangerous one, and it sets up the following morning when the locksmith indeed shows up, apparently, to do his job. Who is it? Dave Griswold. Locksmith? Oh. Hi. Hi. 8.30. Yeah, I, I overslept. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I have to go back. Okay. Hi, this is Jackie. You know what to do. Jackie, listen to me. This is great. Rick, listen, I don't want you to call here anymore. Do you understand? Wait a second. The police think he pretends he's a repairman. He comes in, he gets into people's houses, he kills them. Did you hear what I said? The locksmith. Don't let him in.
In all of the other versions of the story, I think the fact that the creeper is the locksmith is pretty predictable because everybody else is painted so bleakly. Here, because the locksmith is presented earlier on, I think if I did not already know the story that I might have been fooled by this ending. In my discussion of woman to woman last time, I quoted Patrick McGilligan from his book, Alfred Hitchcock, A Life in Darkness and Light. Hollywood stars were box office insurance around the world. Victor Saville went to Hollywood to recruit Betty Compson, a stunning but down-to-earth blonde who had made the transition from vaudeville and comedy to serious dramatic parts. Since Hollywood stars could be brought over to England only at considerable expense, it was standard practice for them to appear in two pictures back-to-back. As soon as filming on their first production was finished, Balkan, Saville, Friedman hastily assembled their next picture. That film would become The White Shadow. So what is The White Shadow? Or White Shadows, as the film was known in the United States. Well, the first title card in the film tells us. It may be said that there are no such things as white shadows, but just as the sun casts a dark shadow, so does the soul cast its shadow of white, reflecting a purity that influences the lives of those upon whom the white shadows fall. In the film, a young man, Robin, meets Nancy on a boat returning from France to England. She is the daughter of a wealthy family, And unbeknownst to Robin, she has a twin sister, Georgina, who, while physically identical, both characters are played by Betty Compson, is spiritually opposite from Nancy. Georgina is sedate, sweet, a homebody. Nancy is adventuresome, rambunctious, unladylike, according to the mores of the times. And so, whether coincidentally or not, depending on how much influence Hitchcock had in this production, we have a doppelganger situation, to which he'll return as soon as The Pleasure Gardens in 1925, and which he'll revisit in such movies as Shadow of a Doubt, and in such television episodes as The Case of Mr. Pelham. In this story, Nancy quickly feels stifled at home and runs away. Her father, who is an alcoholic, is devastated by this, and goes out in search of her. Time goes by without word of either of them, and believing them dead, Georgina and Nancy's mother dies of a broken heart, Georgina inheriting the fortune. When she encounters Robin, who thinks she's Nancy, she decides to play along to protect her sister's reputation. But Nancy, meanwhile, is hanging out in Paris in a nightclub called The Cat Who Laughs, where she is smoking, drinking, and playing cards. A friend of Robin sees her, and reports back to Robin that Georgina is leading a double life. Georgina hears this and realizes that it must be Nancy, so she goes to Paris to try to find her sister. Her father is also there, having tracked Nancy down to Paris, but he has lost his mind, grown a big beard, and become a vagrant. So Georgina and her father, not recognizing each other, are in The Cat Who Laughs. Robin and his friends show up, and then Nancy shows up. And that's where the film ends. Not because it's over, but because that's all we have of the film. Up until 10 years ago, we didn't even have that. But then in 2011, as The Hollywood Reporter puts it, it turned up among the cache of unidentified American nitrate prints safeguarded at the New Zealand Film Archive in Wellington. It was among the many silent-era movies salvaged by New Zealand projectionist and collector Jack Murtaugh. After his death in 1989, the highly flammable nitrate prints were sent to the NZFA for safekeeping. 
and the first three reels of the six-reel feature were found, with no other copy known to exist. David Sterrett, chairman of the National Society of Film Critics and author of the films of Alfred Hitchcock, said, These first three reels of The White Shadow, more than half the film, offer a priceless opportunity to study Hitchcock's visual and narrative ideas when they were first taking shape. And Hitch was the assistant director, the art director, and co-wrote the screenplay, possibly reworking the screenplay by Michael Morton, who wrote the original story, Children of Chance, on which it is based. Michael Morton was also the playwright who wrote Woman to Woman. So Hitch did a lot on the production, but he was not the director. As Bioscope.net says in an article entitled Lost Graham Cuts Film Discovered, the news has gone around the world that this is a rediscovered Alfred Hitchcock film, which is a little misleading. It is something that will have undoubtedly had cuts whirling in his grave because he was particularly resentful of how the young man's talent came to eclipse his own, so that by the end of the decade, the preeminent talent in British film was not Graham Cutts, but his presumptuous protege. So how does the story end? Well, according to an article on jazzageclub.com, Georgina finds Nancy at The Cat Who Laughs and explains what has happened to her family. After this, thinking she has taken Robin's love under false pretenses, Georgina breaks down and goes to a sanatorium in Switzerland. Finally, she persuades Nancy to take her place there, and so when Robin follows, he finds the woman he first loved. Georgina dies, and her soul passes into the body of her twin, this altering Nancy's entire nature. Eventually, all ends happily after the deception is explained and Nancy's father is rediscovered and restored to sanity. So how did critics and audiences respond to this film? Not well. According to jazzageclub.com, Motion Picture Studio said, When a production is made in this country with the pick of British stars and the added commercial and artistic presence of a pretty and clever American screen actress of great box office repute, one is entitled to expect a better result than The White Shadow. If the picture had been the first effort of a modest little firm, one could understand more readily some of the shortcomings and their causes. And Ellen Kurzankoff and Charles Barr in Hitchcock Lost and Found, The Forgotten Films, quote Kine Weekly, There is complete lack of conviction in the way the sisters are mistaken for each other and no attempt at a coherent and well-proportioned sequence of events. It looks as though Michael Morton and the producer had made up the story as they went along. Kurzankoff and Barr say that they and Hitchcock may have actually done just that. They write that the initial second film for Betty Compson was announced as The Prude's Fall, which was already scripted by Hitchcock from a recent West End play. And they speculate that possibly Compson, when she looked at the script, didn't care for it. Adding, as we will see, The Prude's Fall turned out to be even more of a disaster when eventually made, with another American star in Jane Novak fulfilling a two-picture deal. The last-minute replacement was an original story by the author of the play of Woman to Woman, Michael Morton, hastily adapted by Hitchcock into a scenario. Michael Balkan, in his memoir, Michael Balkan Presents A Lifetime of Films, said, Engrossed in our first production, we had made no preparations for the second. Caught on the hop, we rushed into production with a story called The White Shadow. It was as big a flop as Woman to Woman had been a success. Patrick McGilligan, in Alfred Hitchcock, A Life in Darkness and Light, says that critics and audiences hated it, so much so that disaster mounted in the wake of the failure. 
C.M. Wolf, the rental magnate who controlled domestic distribution, dealt the studio a death blow. A former furrier who had made a fortune distributing Tarzan pictures and Harold Lloyd comedies, Wolf spent his career trying to impose his taste on a succession of film companies in which he invested heavily. He detested artistic filmmaking and blamed the failure of The White Shadow on too much artistry. When he withdrew his financing from Balkan Seville Friedman, the company was forced to disband. Yet bankruptcies in the English film industry often yielded unexpected fruit. Scrambling to organize new backing, Balkan regrouped under a different directorship. He founded Gainsborough Productions, named for the 18th century English portrait and landscape painter Thomas Gainsborough. Under Balkan, the smiling Gainsborough lady in ruffled 18th century garb and feathered hat would become one of the film industry's glorious trademarks, signifying good taste and refined entertainment in English cinema. The first Gainsborough production was announced in the spring of 1924, The Passionate Adventure. Graham Cutts was back as director, and Hitchcock returned as art director, co-seniorist, and assistant director. And we'll take a look at The Passionate Adventure next time. The Creeper is the fourth episode this season that ends with a woman on the verge of being murdered. We never see the murder, but we can assume in each case that it takes place. In two of those episodes, Salvage and The Babysitter, it is the woman's romantic notions and desires that prove her downfall. In Salvage, Lois's wish to revive her relationship with Tim leads to her talking Richie into pulling the job that gets him killed so that Richie's brother Dan eventually targets Lois for murder. And in The Babysitter, Lottie's romantic notions about Mr. Nash lead to her not revealing his presence in the apartment during his wife's murder, which leads to her murder by Mr. Nash. In our third example, Shopping for Death, it is suggested that Mrs. Shrike's very nature is inducement for her murder. But what's happening here? Why is Ellen, one of our tragic characters, murdered at the end? As I mentioned, Michael Hoskin, in his blog, Creeper, 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 You Give Me the Creeps, points out that there is an unfortunate sense in Ruskell's script that the heroine's death is some kind of disproportionate retribution. Mention is made that the heroine is flirtatious and the husband is suspicious of her, although we never get any proof that this is the case. So in all of the radio scripts, Mrs. Grant seems to be punished for being beautiful and having been on the stage and for not wanting to give up some semblance of being that star. But that's not the case here in the Hitchcock episode. Here, Ellen's downfall appears to be the very fear that she is hoping will protect her. This is an episode shaped by fear, designed by fear, painted by fear. Fear rules over the directing, the blocking, the settings, and the lighting. But it doesn't begin that way. Yes, it's hot and sticky, but we start outside, kids are playing on the sidewalk, a woman walks by pushing a baby carriage, and we encounter two characters who have no fear at all. So while there's general fear in the neighborhood over the killings, it's not something that's palpable at the start. So where does it come from? It comes from Ellen. When Ellen pokes her head out the window, she joins in the heat and the discussion of the heat. But when she pulls back into her apartment, we follow her and enter her world, which is a world of fear. It is subtle at first because she is still with Steve, her husband. Still, there is the close-up shot of the vulnerable door and Steve's goodbye Ellen finality 
to stir things up. In the radio plays, it seems pretty well established that Ellen is recovering from an illness. Here it almost seems like the talk of an illness is a cover for her anxiety and her fears. Near the end of the episode, Ellen wonders if she is neurotic, and Steve continues to couch it by saying that she's been ill. Here, her fear spreads like a disease. In that way, everyone is a suspect. Everything is dark or rainy or dismal. So there's plenty to fear, but sadly for Ellen, the one thing she doesn't fear is the locksmith. He's supposed to represent salvation, and his appearance is so unpolluted by Ellen's fear that we never even see him within her milieu, all except his hands, of course. There is a sad inevitability about this story. We know from the moment we hear about the creeper and then see Ellen poke her head out the window that she is very probably going to be the next victim. So knowing that, the question becomes less who than why. This is a very well-done episode in mood and ambiance and acting and directing and tempo, but there is something about it that gnaws at me, and that is that question of why. What is Ellen's tragic flaw? Why is she the next victim? Is it that she fears too much? Or is it that she doesn't fear enough? Ellen may have neuroses, but nothing to the extent that she should pay with her life. So maybe it's not Ellen who is at fault here. Maybe it's Steve's anger. It's Ed's feelings of revenge. It's George's strange smile that shows up at the wrong time. It's Mrs. Stone's prejudices and unflinching opinions. It's the shoemaker's leer. And of course, the creeper's murderous tendencies. It's all of society, its cruelties, its callousness, its apathy, and its treatment of women. And Ellen is the sacrificial lamb. Not that anybody learns a lesson. And if you think that's going too far, here's Hitch giving us a cheap joke at the expense of a murdered woman. And so, once again, the creeper commits the most heinous crime a woman can imagine. He takes a telephone away from her in the middle of a call. Obviously, this sadistic criminal will stop at nothing. For the record, the creeper was subsequently caught and is now repairing locks at one of our leading penal institutions. And it looks like we have the European version on our DVD again. Here's the rest of that, according to Martin Grams Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom in the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion. And now for an eye and ear test. See if you can read and hear the following without missing a word. I will be back in a minute to give you your grades. Alfred Hitchcock Presents Season 1, Mary Poppins, The Ghost and Mr. Chicken, The Twilight Zone, The Complete Third Season, and The Complete Fifth Season, Out of the Past, Star Trek The Original Series Season 1, and Mystery Science Theater 3000 Volume 10.2 featuring the giant spider invasion are all available at the Ann Arbor District Library. The Minecraft Creeper Rap, Elton John's Midnight Creeper, the song Black Rain by the band Creeper, the 1986 Alfred Hitchcock Presents episode of The Creeper, the Mole Mystery Theater episode, the Murder at Midnight episode, the Murder by Experts episode, the Chase episode, the Ghost and Mrs. Muir episode, the Clip from Another World, the Thriller episode Fatal Impulse, the 1948 film The Creeper, and the three existing reels of The White Shadow are all available online.
If you would like to contact me about this podcast, please email me at scherzmaa at aadl.org. That's S-J-O-E-R-D-S-M-A-A at aadl.org. And please put Hitchcock somewhere in the subject line. And now, before we go, a correction. I said in the podcast for episode 36, Mink, that Targets was Boris Karloff's last film. Well, Jack Seabrook has corrected me, and he has steered me towards the review of Targets on the website SensesOfCinema.com, which specifically states, Note that this was not Boris Karloff's last film. Just before his death in 1969, he went to Los Angeles, where directors Juan Ibanez and Tarantino idol Jack Hill shot footage of him, which was later added to four Mexploitation Shudderers, Cult of the Dead, Alien Terror, House of Evil, and The Fear Chamber, after his death. Like his competitors, Bela Lugosi and Lon Chaney Jr., two other universal horror greats, Karloff's acting career did not end quite happily by Hollywood standards. But as the horror movie legend once said, as long as they want me, I'd like to work till the very end. So thank you, Jack, for pointing that out. Also, you may remember that back in episode 33, I talked about how the pie lady gave up her show-by-show blog and said that there was only one actually decent episode left in season one. That one, she said, was the penultimate episode of the season, which was this one, The Creeper. She finished by saying, then the season ends with another boring episode. Parenthetically adding, this might not be true. I've never actually watched the entire episode because it's too boring. So let's find out if she's right next time with episode 39, Momentum, starring Skip Holmeyer and Joanne Woodward. Now back to Hitch to finish up. But in order to get what he actually said on the original broadcast, I've had to do a little bit of a mashup between what I have on the DVD and the 1980s outro. Sorry, time is up. Pass in your papers at once. As for tonight's story, if you liked it, please write in. Perhaps we can give you a sequel to The Creeper called The Toddler. Good night. Thank <laughs> you.